In general today, I want to start off with the concept of authority. And I want you to think of some of the types of authority that maybe you have followed throughout your life. Um, maybe as a child, you got yourself into a game of follow the leader. Anybody? Follow the leader, right? Somebody's in authority. You hope, right? The leader isn't going on the road <laughs> in front of the semi. Like, what am I going to do? You know, that would follow the leader. Maybe you had a really influential teacher, or maybe you had a really strong administrator at your school, and you remember their authority and their ability to get children or students to do what needed to be done. Maybe you remember authority in your home, and maybe you have positive memories of authority. Maybe you have negative memories of authority. Uh, maybe when you hear the word authority, you think of governmental authority, and it makes you think of politics and elections and, and Congress and the White House and some of these images that may stir us as citizens of the United States. No matter how we, how we think of authority, God is the one who gives it. And even if we ponder right now in the beginning of our time together, the very best human authority that we've ever seen, whether it's been in our home or, or in a school or a workplace or, or even a favorite leader throughout history, we ponder the, the very best of human authority. It still is authority that God has given and it's still putting our, our trust in, in a person. And the contrast to what we see here in Luke 19 is so different. What happens in, in Luke 19 is so unique. The authority that Jesus has and brings to the city of Jerusalem is unlike anything they had ever seen and unlike anything they'll ever see until Jesus returns. So the title this morning, Blessed is the King, pulled it right out of verse 38 that says, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And we're going to uh, explore some statements uh, today about uh, Jesus being uh, the true King of our world and of our lives. And uh, may we be made aware as we go through this this morning of any other thing that, that uh, we would want to put in place of the authority that Jesus alone deserves. Okay, we're going to focus a little bit uh, here in the, in the first part of this passage. I'm not going to get too much into the details. Uh, if you're a geography student, you can look up Bethphage and Bethany. It all has to do with the way uh, the events uh, unfolded and and. Uh, came about that Jesus would come into the city. Uh, there is this weird thing that happens in uh, 31 through 33 where Jesus had told them, hey, you're going to find a colt and untie it and bring it here. And Jesus says, if anybody asks you uh, why you're doing this, say, well, the Lord has need of it. And so the kind of I read this, basically they're going and hijacking a, a colt. <laughs> They're just taking it. And somebody's like, well, what are you doing with this? Well, the Lord needs it. I do not recommend this for economic policy. 
Okay, don't do this. Don't go into the store and load your cart full of your favorite cereal and walk out and go, the Lord needs it. It's not going to work well for you. It's one of these things that's really, really interesting. I don't have the answer for why Jesus did this. I don't, I don't really know. We, we don't know. The story doesn't tell us why Jesus did this. But I want to I strike at what the disciples had to do. Imagine being those disciples. Like, Why did we draw this assignment? Why are we the ones that have to go steal the colt? <laughs> why, why is it Jesus is telling us to do this and then just tell the people to trust that the Lord needs it? I think it, it strikes at, at our uh, position as humans where a lot of times we just feel entitled to know everything. We want to know everything. Think about the last year of our lives. Think about how much people have gone on and on about what they know or what they think they know or what we are demanding to know about this virus. Why on earth is it not okay for us to say, we just don't know everything? <laughs> but that doesn't seem to have a place in leadership. That doesn't seem to have a place. Like, there's, this is a new thing. It's, there's so much unknown, but we, we rush to try to find all these answers. We trust to get information. And part of it is because we can get so much information. We have so much information in our pocket. Right? We can dial up whatever we want on this little device and it'll, it'll bing off of a satellite or a, some Wi-Fi box somewhere and it'll tell us information. We can get all kinds of information right here. Uh, we didn't used to be able to do this. It made me think of in college when I didn't have one of these and I had to go to the library and do a research project. Come on, show of hands. Whoever used the machine called the microfish? All right, old people. I feel old and saying, yes, I got to use microfish. I remember. And a couple of you are proud of your microfish experience. I'm proud for you. You had to endure that machine. This thing was awful. Right? And you had to, you put this little thing and, and it projects it on this screen like you're, you're watching a, an old black and white movie. And here comes the book or the article you're looking for. And it's on this single one. And you put it in there. And then, I don't even remember, like, could I make copies off the microfish machine? Or do I have to write all of my notes down as I'm looking at the material? It's so crazy. How did anybody used to write research papers? But this is what you did. So you used to go get, you have to struggle to get all this information. And, and for us... I think we're just used to having information. We're so conditioned now that whatever we want to know, we can find it out. But not in passages like this. The Bible confronts our cultural norms, and there really is no explanation for why these disciples were the ones who had to go and do this and why it came about this way. Now, we know that this is fulfilling prophecy, Okay, we know in the Old Testament it's prophesied that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem on the colt, on the foal of a donkey. We know that, okay? But we don't know how it's going to come about. We don't know how God was going to do it. And, and, and so we, we see this. Uh, I, I wanna, this shouldn't surprise us either. I want you to, to think just about some basic concepts uh, from Scripture. In the Old Testament, a donkey talked to a man, I'm not going to try and explain that today. <laughs> I'm not. All I know is when I read in Scripture that it happened, I believe it happened. I believe God spoke through the donkey to Balaam. I, I believe that's what, it, that's what it was. You, 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 you kind of scratch your head and you think, okay, so for so long, the, the people of Israel, they wanted a, a king. And finally, God relents and says, okay, you can have a king. And Samuel 
is in, instrumental in um, helping to bring that about, and uh, he's the one who anoints uh, uh, King Saul. And, and for some unknown reason, the first king is a complete failure. It doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to try and explain all that today. Uh, another one that just is a head-scratcher, as you think about Scripture, you think about concepts of things that happen, like uh, when the Israelites were waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain, they had just come out of Exodus, or out of, out of, Exodus, out of Egypt, uh, in the Exodus. They've just come out of Egypt, and they've brought all this jewelry with them, a plunder of the Egyptians. God had blessed them with riches, and they're waiting for Moses to come back down from the mountain. He had gone up to the mountain to receive the word of God, to receive the commandments by which they were going to be challenged to live. And they got impatient down in the camp. And what did they do with all this victory spoil? <laughs> they, they took some of it, and they melted it, and they turned it into a calf. And it, I think it's one of the dumbest lines in the entire Bible. Uh, Moses comes down, he's hot with anger, and Aaron has no other explanation for this, but, oh, well, we got some of the gold kind of the next to the fire, and we melted it down, and what do you know, out came this calf. <laughs> this is crazy. This is exactly what he says. This is his explanation. For, no, you didn't. You made another god. All right? But this guy, Aaron, becomes... The, the foundation of what we know of the priesthood in the Old Testament. These are head-scratching events. And I don't say all this to say that, boy, you, you, you ought to think twice before you believe the Bible. No, I think it's all the more reason we should. God puts all these crazy things in here, and it, it just challenges us to know that God has ways that we can't understand. And that's true in the life of Jesus. There are things that happen that we can understand. And so if we're taking our view of ourselves this morning and we're starting, we're going to lower down into this passage and we're going to identify with these disciples and we're going to say, I'm not sure that I can quite understand this. I have to lower myself down. Well, the true king, Jesus, he has ways that, that we can't understand. So if you're in a place where uh, you're not sure what God is doing, you're not sure where he's leading, you're not sure what's going on, it's okay. You don't have to be. All right, we're going to skip ahead here, and uh, we'll focus uh, to a little bit after that story uh, where now they're moving uh, down from the Mount of Olives and toward the city. Verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. The true king is always worthy of worship. We see here a scene. Notice who's in this crowd. It's the disciples. It's people that uh, from these other areas that Jesus did ministry that would have begun to follow him. They come uh, and they, they form this, uh, it says, multitude. And they begin to rejoice. And they praise God. He's always worthy of worship. Now, I don't have verse 36 up here on the screen, but if you still have your Bible open, look at that. It says, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. It's kind of like their outer garment, maybe their jacket or their coat, kind of in today's fashion. They would spread their outer garment and put it down on the road. And you think, why in the world would they do that? Well, there's a little bit of a precedent for this. Uh, I found this out in 2 Kings 9. Then in haste, every man 
of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So it's a sign of taking that garment and putting it down and recognizing that somebody is in authority. I'm not trying to suggest that Jehu and Jesus are the same. We're actually going to see today why Jesus is the true king. Jehu was a king, but he was a king for a while, and then he wasn't king, and then he died. So how is Jesus different than Jehu? See, God had given the Israelites a lot of kings. I mentioned that for a long time they they wanted to have a king like other nations, and, and Saul became the first one, and then there were other kings, and it came really with a lot of heartache for the people as a whole. It was not overall a successful endeavor. There were several obedient kings, but there were uh, many who took the nation farther and farther away from God. They, what happened is they put their trust in a person, and while some of them prospered, the nation, the general direction, was the opposite of up. Jesus, different than Jehu. Now, now, we talked about this as we met to pray after worship rehearsal this morning. Like, imagine, if you will, imagine you are in Jerusalem and you're in this setting and there is this crowd of people who are celebrating Jesus' entry. It's okay to have a good, holy, scriptural imagination sometimes. I think it really helps us to connect. I would, I've never been to Israel. I've never been to Jerusalem. I can't imagine um, where the Mount of Olives is in my mind and see that and, and kind of imagine the trek that Jesus would have made uh, down into the city from the hillside. But surely some of them in this crowd thought that Jesus was entering Jerusalem to inaugurate himself as the ruling king. He was going to institute himself as the government. They had hoped and longed for this to happen. Now, I want to fast forward just a little bit of time. We're going to go through the the last week of Jesus' life. We'll go through those stories. We'll go through uh, the powerful event of Jesus' crucifixion, of him dying for our sins, his burial in a tomb, his resurrection from the dead. And then we're going to fast forward about six more weeks of events. Jesus lived as a resurrected body on the earth for about 40 days, uh, the scripture tells us, and then he ascends into heaven. And I wanted to show you what happens right before Jesus ascends into heaven. All right, so I want to show you that it's not unreasonable that they would have thought Jesus is coming to establish himself as the ruling king of the government of Jerusalem. Here in Acts 1, after all this is over, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They thought that was the point of his death and burial and resurrection. And they want to know, is this the time now when when you're going to restore this kingdom? Can we have our, our land and our, our government? Are you going to be the king? Are you, going to, are you going to do this? He was the true king. But his kingdom, earthly, governmentally, politically, wasn't for them. This is the difference between Jesus and Jehu. Jesus is worthy of worship. Now, there's a couple things in the passage 
that, that show us that. Difference between Jesus and Jehu. They put their cloaks down to recognize Jehu's authority. They put their cloaks down to recognize Jesus. But look at the way this says in verse 37. Let me go back. We're just going to do that. Look at the very end of that verse. Praise God with what? A loud voice. Why? For all the mighty works they had seen. They knew the ministry of Jesus. They knew the miracles. They knew the healing. They knew the teaching. And they were excited to worship him. The recognition of Jehu's authority or any other king is not worship. Simply human authority put in place by God. Jesus is the authority. He is God. And he's coming and he's set aside by the phrase, now we're going to go forward, in 38. It says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The true king is always worthy of worship. You see 38 up there, it helps us uh, transition. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, if you think about that, what does that sound like? Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Anybody? What's it sound like? Yeah, it sounds like Christmas, doesn't it? When Jesus was born. Sounds like what the angels said. Now, Luke is the author. That's Luke chapter 2. And this is Luke chapter 19. Nobody praised Jehu or any other king in heaven like that. Jesus is the true king. And he is worthy of worship. Heaven was involved in Palm Sunday. Worship happens all the time in heaven. Jesus has been and always will be worthy of worship because he is the true king. His truth was on display. His might, his power, his works. And it's what led to this celebration, this jubilant, joyful scene. The question for us today, is he always worthy of worship in our hearts, our homes, our church, our day-to-day lives? What we find out is that no person will ever substitute for the true king. No person will ever substitute for the true king. I don't use extreme language to get people riled up. I don't know that emotional response and and going for that every single time, at some point it just gets old, you get tired. (laughs) All right? But I want to use a strong statement today as I try to call it like I see it, and I, I want to say that, I, I, and I'm going to tell you why in a moment, I believe the church in the United States and in Western culture is in crisis in this very moment in 2021. I believe that. And I believe, 
And, and the, part of the reason I believe that is that it's hard for me to go more than a couple of days without hearing stories, real-life stories, individuals, couples, churches, family units, whatever it happens to be, of seeing complete and utter divisiveness because of politics and earthly kingdoms. I really believe we're at a point of crisis when the goal of our news media is to get us to land on an extreme point and, and begin to bash the other side, if we get sucked into that, unity is going to go out the window. And I believe we are at a crisis point because I believe these tactics to divide are working and they're infiltrating the church. Now, you're going to say, wait a minute, what does this have to do with Palm Sunday? Don't ruin Palm Sunday with politics. This celebration seems pretty harmless, in fact, some of you may be thinking, hey, pastor, could you just leave this alone? I kind of like Palm Sunday. It's really kind of neat. It's nice. Everybody's celebrating Jesus. It kind of feels all together. So can't you just leave this alone and not say anything about all this stuff? Well, stay with me. It's kind of like when you're watching a movie and, and you, 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 you're watching on your, on your watch and you know that it's not quite time for the end, but everything feels really good. Right? You're at that point in the plot where maybe they've overcome some things and a couple people are together and, and they've worked through it and it looks like it's all moving in a good direction. But you know, you almost know that something else is coming because it's not time to be the end of the movie yet. Anybody remember like this, these types of scenes? Sure. Okay. I think this is Palm Sunday. Can't read Palm Sunday without the tension in the plot of knowing what's going to happen. That's number one. We'll be back here Thursday night to explore more of that tension of the last week of Jesus' life. But the, the, the way the story is told in Luke and the other Gospels, it doesn't, it doesn't relieve us of, of tension on the page. It doesn't. Let's take a, take a look at this. What happens after heaven is rejoicing and glory in the highest? They're calling on heaven and praising Jesus as he comes into, into Jerusalem. What happens in 39? The tension's right there on the page for us, isn't it? And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Huh? So you may wonder, who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees are the really knowledgeable and religious leaders of the day, and they, throughout the stories of the Gospels, were threatened by Jesus, his presence, his power, the miracles, his teaching. They were afraid that people were going to put their faith in him and not in them. And so what happens? Instead of recognizing that God himself is in their midst, what do they try to do? They try to control what God is doing. The people are trying to control God. Now, before you shake your head and go, that's ridiculous, now I give you full permission to shake your head and go, that's ridiculous, because it is. All right? It's ridiculous. But before we do that, shouldn't we pause? Have we ever in our lives wanted to question what God is doing? Have we ever wanted to say, God, why, why, why not this way? What about this? Why wouldn't you... 
We ask these questions sometimes. And so let's be careful before we get too critical. The Pharisees thought Jesus was worthy of rebuke. They thought his disciples shouldn't be celebrating him. The miracle-working power, the life-changing power. To them, it was just worthy of a rebuke. But instead, Jesus is worthy of worship, and there's no people, there's no person that will ever replace that. Blessed is the king. This passage leads us ultimately to a crisis of worship. Now, I'm going to circle back. Our culture, 2021, a crisis of worship. Am I completely out of line to suggest that somewhere in our hearts we have done what the Pharisees are doing and saying, God, why don't you do it this way? Why don't you put this person in power? Or why don't you bring these events about in a different way? Do we ever sit back as we take in the news or read and say, well, shouldn't God do this? Or I would feel a lot better if my side were doing it this way or this side had power or this person should have done this or won this election or whatever it happens to be. And we sit back and we ask all these questions and, and we end up so completely divided because of all of these things. It's a crisis of worship. We don't need to look anywhere else for worship and what to worship to make us feel complete. Is the celebration of Jesus enough to capture our hearts, our attention, our affections? Or is it yeah, Jesus is that thing I do on Sunday, but man, come Monday, I really like for this to be going my way. Things are going pretty easy and there's not a lot of difficulty right now. I really need that in order to worship Jesus. What about Jesus plus a lot of money? Or what about Jesus plus a certain family status? Or what about Jesus plus my point of view has to be in power? We put all of these things in addition to Jesus sometimes is our condition. And it's not, it's not just thinking wrong. It's a crisis of worship. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The minute we add anything to that, we begin to shape and mold Jesus into what we want rather than who he is. This all breaks my heart. I'm not saying all this just to feel better about myself today. I want to continue to help you understand that there are real ramifications of this. I mentioned this last week where I heard about a, a church that split over masks and whether or not to, to wear them. Between the pandemic and the social issues, the election, uh, the politics, uh, it's so difficult for us in this day and age to converse legitimately with anybody who differs from where we are. And I think the last 12 months have, have kind of ripped the Band-Aid off of a lot of wounds, and, and we're not really sure how to treat them. The question this Palm Sunday, if we, if we imagine landing in this scene, it, it, the question that we should ask is no different than the question they were forced to ask who is the king? Who is worthy of worship? 
yes, there are other things in our society that matter. But if it's Jesus plus, then we're really worshiping the wrong God. We've created another God, and it will let us down. I want you to see how Jesus interacted uh, with Pilate. Have you figured this out yet? I said it in the very beginning of the service. <laughs> All right, if you're one of those blank anticipators, you should have had this if you're paying attention. Is Jesus truly our king? All right, that's the challenge we're going to go out of here with. And here's how, here's how Jesus uh, interacted with Pilate. He entered the headquarters and called Jesus. I said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, do you say this to your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Now, um, somehow the, the, the font on this got really big. <laughs> in the translation that we use. No, I'm kidding. I made the font really big and bold. Jesus answered, look at this. My kingdom is not of this world. Palm Sunday is a crisis of worship. Who is our king? Do we say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord? Or do we say, blessed is the king, and I hope he sets up the kingdom my way and the way I want to see it done? And until then, I just can't worship. <laughs> it sounds a little bit humorous. I'm not trying to be humorous. Because these are things I think that are affecting our hearts as the church. We have a savior. We have a king. And his kingdom is not of this world. We have a crisis of worship. I want to introduce you to Jesus, the king. Is he truly our king? Yes, he came to die. Yes, he came to save us from our sins. No effort of human beings could ever do it. Yes, he works in um, societies with different governments. Yes, he works among the poor, among the powerful, among the elite, among the educated, among the non-educated, among everybody in between, the working class, everybody. God works everywhere. His kingdom is not of this world and it doesn't play by our structures. I would encourage you today, please turn to Jesus if you have not. He is worthy to be your king. Repent of your sin and trust that Jesus alone can forgive it, that he died to make that happen and pay the price that each one of us should pay. I would urge you today to repent and turn. And if you're convicted today, it's the Holy Spirit, it's not me. I'm not able to do that. If you're convicted that you have some other kingdom that is competing with the kingdom of Jesus, some other king or person that is competing with the authority that Jesus should have in your life, do the wonderful thing and, and experience the grace of God and repent and turn away from that thinking today and say, I want to trust Jesus and Jesus alone. I want to see his kingdom work in ways that maybe not, may not work according to the principles that I think they will. That he'll do things that I don't quite understand that's the Jesus we want to walk with, the Jesus that we want to trust. The minute we try to control the whole thing, we end up just like the Pharisees. Let's walk in faith and boldness instead, worshiping Jesus, our true king.